0: If you are hearing this broadcast, seek shelter immediately.
1: What is it? what's going on? If you are hearing this broadcast, oh, shelter. John, God. seek
0: shelter. Immediately. Hang on, seek shelter immediately. Seek shelter immediately. Don't panic you don't need to take shelter immediately. That's just a clip from Greenland, a new movie that features Gerard Butler, Morena Baccarin, and a big bad interstellar comet named Clark. But interstellar comets, and the potential for comet collisions to cause a catastrophe, are not totally fictional. Greetings, Earthlings! I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and culture. In this episode, I'll be talking with the visual effects supervisor for Greenland about the fictional side of the film, and then I'll get a reality check from a foundation that's watching out for potentially hazardous asteroids and comets. So come out of your bomb shelter and give a listen. Mark Massacott has worked on digital effects for more than two dozen movies and TV shows, ranging from RoboCop to Battlefield Earth. He's the visual effects supervisor for Greenland, which means he played a big role in figuring out what a comet catastrophe would really look like. Asteroid and comet disasters got the big screen treatment more than 20 years ago in a couple of movies called Armageddon and Deep Impact. But Mark told me that the visual effects in Greenland aren't just a remake.
1: We didn't want to repeat uh, what had been done. Uh, we wanted to update and also be as close to, to what reality uh, as we know it now is um obviously we we're constantly learning and evolving uh, uh, the science and uh, you know astronomy uh based type science so we had a lot of of uh of research uh, i did quite a bit of research on different phenomena and uh airbursts were something that had a large interest uh, for me specifically um in, in the way that we you know you'd have like a an asteroid that would come in and have an airburst and it would. You know, at nighttime would pretty much light up the sky and and light up its whole environment as if we had we were in total daytime, uh, having beautiful shifting shadows and and shadow play on on vehicles that were driving at night on the road and so on and so forth. So there was so much visual language and, and visual intensity to these and and the sheer power behind it. So it wanted to find a way to convey that message, and and we had a few moments we were able to do that, and and hopefully it came across.
0: Are there some things that moviegoers should watch for as something that you're particularly proud of?
1: I think that uh, the 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 one scene where um, you know our our, our actress is, is uh, walking back from on the highway, she's stranded on the highway and um, she she hears a sound and then turns around and you see the actual an actual air burst. We had we're playing around with the idea and how to execute that, and I, I really like the way it came it came together how the, the visual effects studio put it all together and then the, the different camera angles and, and, and the feeling for you really we, we got a good sense of, of reality and the strength of it, but at the same time there was quite a bit of beauty to it. And then the final the, one of the final the previous final impact uh, in Greenland, how it hit and, and, and hit right off the shore and hit the water, the amount of displacement of, of, of that seawater, and the shockwave in itself, how it traveled, the speed of travel, plus the, the, the how it displaced the clouds, uh, you know, there was so much minute detail that you would have to watch it again and again to really pick up on all of the details that we included in there.
0: Can you give me a little more detail on the sort of research you do for this sort of thing? Do you look at scientific papers? I know that Armageddon and Deep Impact were uh, two of the pioneering movies back in, I believe, 1998 or so, uh, that talked about uh, asteroid strikes or comet strikes. <laughs> uh what how, exactly what did you look at and and what did you learn personally uh, about the threats from the skies are you more scared now than you were with <laughs> this project
1: it's uh it's yeah that's an inter- that's a good question i mean i didn't i didn't really specifically um really lead myself into a very specific direction of, uh, uh, you know, a publication, so to speak, or, but I did, I I would go to NASA. was like kind of the first go-to just to see what they, they had on the matter and Wikipedia helped a lot. And, and, you know, Google was your, my main search engine, as I would just type in different strands, questions of uh, asteroids and comments and differences. And and that's where I learned about airbursts and, and, you know, the different uh, airburst events that we've had over, over time, uh in, in you know the north of russia was, which was a pretty uh, strong I, one that um, tunguska,
0: i noticed that tunguska got a call out in the movie which was pretty cool for asteroids. exactly
1: experts. exactly and and that one was a, a a source of that's you know that's how we got to learn more about airbirds and that's why we wanted to include more of them it was interesting to learn about all of this and learning the amount that we receive on a on a yearly basis. you know, you initially, you think it it just happens once in a while or but just so it happens so often that you don't realize it or you don't know about it or you don't hear about it. And interestingly enough, is when we were finishing this film, we were starting to hear more like news online of these close events, you know, asteroids well that would really like graze the Earth or potentially hit. And even just as recently as like what uh, a few weeks ago, I, I believe.
0: Yeah, there are close approaches. There was one that uh, got a got a little press uh, lately, and and every once in a while you hear about that. Sometimes uh, the threat isn't until. You know, the year twenty one forty seven, or whatever. <laughs>
1: but correct.
0: Sometimes something comes past, and uh, you don't even know about it until it's past. And I think that is the scenario that was sketched out in the movie, where this came exactly. and uh, people weren't certain where it was going because it was breaking up. So exactly, uh,
1: everyone thought it was just going to pass over, and, and we just had a chunk that was going to land in the ocean, and and we were safe. And it uh, it, it did not happen that way. Uh, as we all know, and it, it hit uh, a chunk of Florida. And, and that's another visually notable moment in the film where we have the uplifting. I mean, you know, we have to play with creative license where, you know, like we, we, we want to make it as, as devastating and, and, and for lack of a better word, word beautiful to, to look at in terms of, of the visual effects, but uh, also really um, demonstrate the sheer power of, of these astral objects when they hit a planet. And, um, and, and therefore, like we, we revisited Florida at the end of the film when we were pulling out from, from the planet. and we saw on the map the, the, the ever changed map of the Earth. And we would see the huge crater of Florida that had pretty much you know disappeared.
0: You touched on uh, an issue that I think a lot of filmmakers have to deal with, where you have scientific accuracy on one side, and then on the other side, you have really making a dramatic story. Did Did you find that there were some occasions where you were pushed in or pulled in one direction or another, where you had to make those decisions to turn the dial up a little bit, even though maybe it's not totally supported by the science?
1: Absolutely. No, Absolutely. I'm a person who loves to keep it as realistic as possible. Uh, oftentimes, you know, presenting invisible effects, as we call them, uh, that you would believe them to be uh, uh, filmed uh, uh, live. And, and then it's an event that has happened and just it adds so much more value in, in, in my eyes. But, you know, there's certain things that you can't film in reality, such as these events and obviously because they, they haven't happened and, and hopefully won't happen for a long time. But um, when you want to introduce this type of visual language, it, you have a very it's a very fine line of, of, of going too far in, in the surreal and, and the quote unquote Hollywood you know, visual language. and also not going far enough that the effect gets lost or it loses its impact to the audience. It loses its, um, its, you, know, the oomph of, of the hits. It's a fine line and it's, sometimes we'll do many exercises, many repetitions to try to find that perfect scenario for us to express it.
0: One thing that I found really interesting was in the latter part of the movie, uh, the sky took on this red glow and everything was tinted red. Uh, I wondered how you came up with that because it reminded me of uh, the experience of, of being in wildfire season.
1: That's exactly it. And so we were we were basically as we were shooting the Australian fires were ongoing. and uh, there were you know we, we had done a lot of research uh, also from all the, the the fires in California in the past and, and this was this was something we wanted to, to to use visually because considering in the time frame within the film, time that has passed the amount of impacts that had hit the earth, and the devastation and the ongoing fires from these impacts, it, it we wanted to show how it had started to affect the climate, the atmosphere, the air that one would be going through. So, you know, you have all these microparticulates that get lifted from from the smoke, from the burning, from the and in the clouds and everything that gets lifted from the impacts as well, which is more significant than a wildfire, I would imagine, um, would start you know, not either not necessarily blotting out the sun, but definitely changing the the, the composition of, of the, the you know the visual temperature that we normally perceive.
0: I wanted to touch on the technical tools that you use in your work uh, that uh, I I would imagine that in the past few years, there have been more advances in the tools for generating visual effects. Are there things that you were able to do for this movie that you might not have been able to do uh, three or four years ago?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, this this is a an industry that's ever-evolving. The tools are continuously getting better and better to to the point where now we're seeing artificial intelligence as being introduced. And it's greatly helping on the technical side to allow for a more creative exploration. Um, it, it allows us to have more destructive power of, of the environments that we create for these types of movies. So we can really you know, instead of focusing on on and, and limiting the amount of destruction we may want to introduce, we're able to, like, you know, uh, uh, spread that across the film and, and really tell a story. And, and the, our paintbrush is is uh, much broader in that sense.
0: What are your go-to brushes in that uh, palette? Uh, what, what technical tools for the VFX geeks out there uh, do you most value nowadays?
1: Well, um one that has made, a, I wouldn't say a recent comeback, but has definitely come, come back very strong is a, Houdini is a tool that's, that's being used quite a lot for crowd simulation and any type of uh, special effects such as fire, smoke and water and, and much more. Uh, Maya is an ongoing staple of the visual effects industry for uh, almost everything that's 3D in, in regards to uh, modeling and, and, and all from every step of the way, uh, you know layout and modeling and texturing and animating and lighting and rendering and then you'll have different render engines, of course. Um, and every studio have their own um, special specific render engine that they'd like to use. some make have their own internal tools is something that we'll find uh, with various size studios, like the biggest studios will have uh, a fair amount of investment in internal development, um, such as ILM and, and um, Weta, uh, to name the two, one of some of the, the biggest and uh, obviously there are quite a few more. And Nuke will be your, um, your staple compositing tool uh, for, for, for VFX uh, films. These are f- a few <laughs> of the tools that are used uh, within the arsenal of the effects. There are so much more.
0: Well, I'm going to go back to that question. Uh, are you more scared after working on this movie than you were before?
1: It's, a, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I want to say I'm more scared. I think I'm more uh, fascinated uh, and, and curious. Uh, there, I, I do believe that, I understand it a little bit more in terms of the the, the, the the you know the dangers and the impacts that it may create, uh, and and give us a, like in terms of like if we have the uh, the size uh, uh, you know a comet that hits the size of a car a football field it'll be extremely devastating but it won't necessarily be you know it won't wipe us out um, but you know it's 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 all these little aspects that I, I'm still very curious and I would love to learn more about obviously um but yeah it's it's it, it does it has shone a light on our little place in the universe and how we're not uh, so uh, indestructible
0: well that's a pretty good place to be thank you so much mark for shedding some light on the threats from above but also how you deal with those in the movie world
1: yeah and hopefully we just keep them in the movies <laughs> it's my pleasure <laughs>
0: For the real science of a comet crash or an asteroid blast, the folks you want to check in with are at the B612 Foundation, which has been raising awareness about the threat of cosmic collisions for more than 17 years. I asked Danica Remy, the Foundation's president, whether scary movies like Greenland are a net plus or a minus for her cause.
2: We feel like every movie that gets issued that talks about this subject is a way to educate the public and raise awareness about the issue. The science in the movies may not be correct, but certainly the discussion um, and education aspect of the fact that these things do happen, you know, we think is a plus. You know, movies that talk about the end of the world, you know, we don't think that that's going to happen. NASA's found... 95% Um, 95% of the asteroids that are the size of the or larger than the um, asteroid that took out the dinosaur, so that kind of existential threat to the entire world um, has largely been uh, solved, or at least we know where they are. The vast majority of them. You know, it's it's good for the world to learn about celestial objects, um, even if they are sometimes filled with uh, terrifying storylines.
0: So what did you think? Were there things that uh, you thought were particularly clever or things that you might want to tell the uh, moviegoers and the movie makers? Well, the next time you make a movie like this, why don't you do this instead of that? (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, uh, I, I think the, um, the visual effects of um, flames in the sky and the flames coming down to Earth um, are um, images that I, I don't think most scientists would concur with um, in terms of, you know, how they would land on Earth. If you look at Meteor Crater in the United States in um, Winslow, Arizona, um, that's a very, very large uh, impact crater. Most of San Francisco, downtown San Francisco could fit inside of it. Um, and it'll make a very big hole. But um, the the fire aspect of it, I, I I don't think is you know high on the list. These are very cold objects coming from space. I don't think that we'll be looking at fires from a cocktail party as they did uh, in the film.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. And uh, uh, how do you think it would look? Uh, And I I realize this is a little tricky to talk about, because for one thing, we hope something like this never happens. And as you say, uh, people are really able to track a lot of the bigger asteroids. It's more like the uh, smaller asteroids, but not too small. There's a tricky category in there where there are asteroids that could be considered city killers. They don't end civilization, but if they hit in exactly the wrong place, it'll be a bad day for Los Angeles. So what sorts of scenarios uh, does the B612 Foundation have to think about as they're raising the awareness about the uh, issue of cosmic threats?
2: Well, I'll say that B612 Foundation's primary role is to develop science and technology to help us um, find and deflect asteroids. So, you know, we're building tools to enable us to predict uh, where an asteroid is and where it's going to be in the future um, so that we can actually put in place mitigation strategies should an asteroid have our address on it. And, you know, we're quite certain that there are asteroids that have Earth's address on it. It's just a question of when they will come to um, impact earth. I would say that the important part of the work of B612 Foundation um, has been obviously raising awareness about this issue at a at a national level and at a global level. Um, and we've made some good progress. Um, you know, NASA's got a, a, a mission that's going to launch next year, the double asteroid redirect test mission, where we're really going to practice, humanity is going to practice our very first deflection campaign um, on a very safe asteroid that's, you know, not going to come anywhere near Earth. Um, So we're making progress in the real world. And so the images, just like the images that came from Hayabusa 2 and OSIRIS-REx when they were taking um, sample missions, that's the kind of great storytelling where it's real science and, you know, you see what it's like to, you know, visit an asteroid, to, you know, visit one of these celestial bodies and each time we go to them, we learn something new. And so the ability to tell stories about say, celestial objects, um, we're getting better and better elements um, to, to tell the story better because we're learning about them.
0: What sorts of categories of asteroids are uppermost on the agenda, is it a case of just kind of learning what they're made of? Uh, You mentioned the DART mission that involves uh, seeing what basically the physics of deflection might be. I mean, there there are uh, multiple scientific objectives for that mission, but the one I think that that really gets people is the idea, if you had to deflect an asteroid, how much would it take and uh, what would the effect be? Is that the sort of thing that we need to concentrate on and how does it figure into the planning for uh, addressing any potential threats? Or I, I don't know, you could use this technology to perhaps move an asteroid into an orbit that you want it in so that you can do something with it. What would be involved?
2: Well, um, you know, there's three ways that we you know, generally accept as ways to deflect an asteroid. The first is a kinetic impactor, which is what the DART mission is. So that's where you take a small spacecraft and you just smash it into an asteroid. And then you measure how much it's changed. The second one is a gravity tractor. So that's where you take a very small spacecraft and put it near an asteroid and you tug it into um, another uh, orbit. And then the third one, which um, we hope we never have to use, is a, a nuclear standoff where you don't blow it up like in Armageddon but where you would explode it near the asteroid and then the explosion will push the asteroid away. So each of these scenarios um, for for deflection is a story unto themselves. And I look forward to the filmmaking community to continue to tell stories about uh, asteroids, asteroid adventures, asteroid campaigns. Um, I get excited that the world wants to learn about these and we don't know a lot about them, um, which is you know, part of the exciting thing that Hayabusa 2, um, which is a Japanese mission and OSIRIS-REx, which is a U.S. mission, we're going to learn an awful lot about these objects and we don't know a lot about them. I mean, we've got a sample that just arrived um, in Australia from uh, Hayabusa 2 um, whose uh, the asteroid samples are being distributed um, all around the world after Japan um, opens up the container and looks at what they've collected. So it's a really exciting time for science. And what these asteroids will tell us, we hope, we think, are, are the, about the origins of our life on this planet, like how we came to be. What are they made of? They, they, they include the elements and ingredients of life. It's a really exciting time right now, Uh, this whole world of asteroid science. And you can throw comets in there. They're not as um, uh, frequent. There's not as many comets as there are asteroids, but it's it's a really exciting time.
0: The uh, cosmic object that was the focus of all the concern in the movie Greenland was an interstellar object. It was a comet. And we've had a couple of examples of those just in the past couple of years. And how does that change the uh, equation in terms of how we think about these cosmic objects uh, and what we do about them?
2: Well, uh comet's going to be a lot harder to deflect than uh, an asteroid, they move a lot faster, they've come in at, you know, much steeper angles, um, and there's not as much time to react because of their speed. So, um, Amor more was, you know, a, a, an exciting time for science. And, you know, they're still dissecting uh, and, 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 you know, understanding what they've learned from the observations that they uh, had had from it. Um,
0: Right. Uh, And Oumuamua was that first interstellar object that was detected. But people say that there may be others coming our way.
2: I'm sure. And the more eyes we have on the sky, the more um, opportunities we will be able to observe those kinds of objects, whether it's a comet or an asteroid. I mean, our biggest problem right now from a humanities perspective is that we don't have enough eyes on the sky. Um, we don't have a space-based telescope that is out there searching. Um, when our telescopes that are on land, um, you know, can only search half of the time, depending upon where they're located on um, our planet, they see the northern or the southern hemisphere. We've made really good strides with some telescopes that NASA has funded and one that ESA has funded. And then there's a very large telescope that's gonna come online in just a couple of years called the Vera Rubin Observatory, formerly called LSST. And that's gonna deliver us a a very large data set, over 100,000 new asteroids, um, asteroid observations. Right now in our database of all the asteroids that are near Earth, remember, we care about the ones that come near Earth, So the ones that are out in the asteroid belt, they're great, but we're not particularly worried about them. Um, But our current database has about 25,000 near-Earth asteroids of all sizes. I mean, LSST is gonna make a big difference, but even with LSST, we need additional assets. So whether it's, um, you know, NEOSIM, which is uh, NASA's proposed and um, has got some funding for, um, or other uh, space-based telescopes, we need more eyes on the sky Humanity needs more eyes on the sky. If we believe that it's important to take a long view, a long-term view, we have to invest for the future. And I'll just take COVID as as an example. The fact that our country, many countries, didn't have enough PPEs available for a pandemic. We knew a pandemic was going to come. We know pandemics happen we did not invest in that. It was a surprise. It doesn't need to be a surprise. And so these celestial objects, we know they're going to come. We shouldn't be surprised. We should invest in protecting humanity. And one of the challenges that we have is that often we take a short view.
0: Right, right. Uh, so I guess in that sense, the uh, Things like movies, uh, television shows, I know that the B612 Foundation is very much involved in the annual Asteroid Day observance. That's all part of the equation for this.
2: That's correct. That's correct. Yep. Asteroid Day is uh, a global day of education and awareness about asteroids, both risks and opportunities. And it was modeled after Earth Day, and people all around the world celebrate asteroids and think about how to deflect asteroids and try and understand you know, what it means to support planetary defense or understand what is inside of a meteor. So it's, it's a day, um, one tool of many, to help educate the world about asteroids and in the case of Greenland comets.
0: So getting back to the world of Hollywood again, obviously Greenland is not the first movie to focus on uh, asteroids and comets. You mentioned Armageddon, which was about this big, bad asteroid. Uh, Deep Impact, another movie that came out at about the same time, uh, was uh, about a comet that was going to destroy humanity. Do you feel as if... uh, We've learned uh, a lot more in the past uh, 20 years or so, and when I say we, I'm talking about scientists as well as filmmakers.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a there's a great organization in Los Angeles called the Science and Technology Exchange, um, which works with filmmakers to you know match scientists with filmmakers when they want to make sure that things are technologically or scientifically correct. That organization didn't exist 20 years ago, um, and so you know I think in the field of storytelling, uh, there's more of an awareness that it's great to be entertained, but it's also great to have good science and good technology properly represented.
0: Okay, here's the big question to finish up with: Is it thumbs up or thumbs down on Greenland? Uh, and uh, I'm—I'll tell you in advance, I'm—I'm uh, uh, I'm a thumbs up guy. That. Uh,
2: I'm a Totally thumbs up. I thought the narrative, the storyline, was great. I thought the acting was really good. I thought that the tension through the the various uh, scenes was really good. As a parent, I probably would not have um, left my um, uh, let my husband leave me um, with my child. But if that hadn't happened, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened.
0: <laughs> okay. So uh, you and I, we'll, we'll have a Siskel and Ebert partnership here. The next asteroid movie, you'll be the first one I call. Great. Thank you. To learn more about Greenland and about the science of interstellar objects, Asteroids and comets. Check out the Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. Feel free to sign up for a free email subscription to Cosmic Log. Subscribe to Fiction Science via your favorite podcast channel, and tell your friends to tune in. Thanks to Mark and Danica for the interviews, and thanks to James Emley for performing the Cosmic Log theme. We've got some amazing guests on deck for future episodes. And so until next time, this is Alan Boyle seriously advising you to watch the skies.